Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. Pastor Ben Pitney has one last Summer of Psalms message from Psalm 51, where he asked the question, are you committed to change? At Vail Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Today we're going to end our uh, summer teaching series in uh, the book of Psalms. We're going to end it up with Psalm 51. So you can turn in your Bible to Psalm 51. We've had a really great journey through some of these Psalms and they can kind of be, um, um, each Psalm can be, you can teach teach each Psalm, I guess, so to speak, uh, sort of independently from the others. But they are all connected. There's a purpose to all of them. And um, we've been focusing on some specific ones. In particular, the ones that that I have addressed. um, David being in a cave, writing a song because he's distressed, because he's he's hiding from his son who's being very rebellious and wants to take over. So who wants to kill him? And so his son David, his son Absalom has died and he writes this wrenching psalm. And he cries out to the Lord, and it's, it's actually very encouraging and, and really unique. Um, the, uh, there, there are other psalms that, and songs that David writes. Last week, we talked about, uh, we, we journeyed through Psalm uh, 29, where he describes um, life like it's a storm, like it's a thunderstorm. And we talked about the monsoon and things like that. And it's very descriptive and very dramatic. Today, this psalm is really about confession this song is about sin, and um, I, it, it sounds a little crazy to say, but I don't think we talk about sin probably enough in church. It's, sin's not an easy thing to talk about. It's uncomfortable. Who wants to talk about it? It's, it's a difficult subject to address, but David writes a song in response to his sin. It's amazing. It's very um, dramatic. David's sin in particular is the sin of adultery. It's the sin of murder. It's really bad. I mean, he's sinning against the Lord. It, it is, it's a kind of an awful thing. And he is confronted by a, uh, the prophet Nathan. And uh, that can't be easy. It can't be easy to confront or be confronted about your sin. So what we're going to capture, I think, in, the, in this song is there are, there's the, the truth of and the unbelievable response of David to that. And it's very encouraging and, and, uh, and it's quite theological, actually. So here's the first question I really want to ask you before we read through this psalm. Are you committed to change? Because that's what it's going to take. Are you committed to change? Nobody likes change. Are you committed to personal change? How do you deal with change? Most of us do not like to change. I don't like it when um, things change as much as it might seem. Um, Sometimes I, I convince myself I'm open to it, but if somebody's parking in a space I'm used to parking in, I'm like, what are you doing? That's my space. 
I got to go find something new. You know, now what? You know, maybe you feel that way about your seat at church. This is my spot. And um, it throws you off if someone sits in your spot, you know, because it's a change for you. But the gospel teaches us that the power of sin has to be broken or has been, excuse me, broken by the work of the Lord Jesus. But the presence of sin still remains in us. That means that we are progressively, uh, God is progressively eradicating sin in our lives. Now, so we're going to talk about this actually quite a bit. So if you wonder what God's agenda is for you today, right now, here, in light of this message, I'm, I'm going to take a stab out here and say that it, it's, it's summed up in a word, change, and God's transformation is continuous in you and I, and we have to change. We must change. So the agenda for you right now is change. The church doesn't like to change. It's hard for the church to change. We're slow to change, but here's what this means. You've got to be committed to something for this change to happen. And for many of us, this is hard as well. It's really hard, actually. It's called confession. What? Yeah, confession. Confession is the God-ordained portal to change. That's how you change. It takes confession. And confession is agreeing with God about the sin that's in our lives. In confession, what you do is you own personally, you own um, a personal responsibility for your words, for your behaviors and your actions, right? Without excuses, without shifting the blame, that's confession. You agree with God about the sin that's in your life, all right? That's confession, Lots of people think that confession is asking for forgiveness. But for the Christ follower, the the person who is the believer, the person who has sworn allegiance to the king, who has this deep, intimate relationship with Jesus, this faith belief in Jesus, confession is agreement with God about the sin. Now, that's really important thing to kind of develop your lens that you're looking through regarding this message today in this psalm. So the main point today is that actually confession is a grace. Confession is a grace. Confession is a grace. And one more thing, all right? One more thing. We get confused grace and mercy sometimes. There is a difference between mercy and grace, in other words. So let me say it like this. I'm going to put this up for you. Mercy is the act of withholding deserved punishment. That's mercy, while grace is the act of endowing unmerited favor, giving you something you don't deserve, right? In mercy, God does not give us punishment we deserve, namely hell. While in his grace, God gives us the gift we do not deserve, namely heaven. So we utilize the word mercy and the word grace interchangeably a lot. And they are, for the most part, interchangeable words, but they have distinct differences. So we don't always view Grace, I think, correctly, we don't view grace as a gift either. But when you become aware of sin through God or maybe through another person like David has done through Nathan and God and his relationship with God, or maybe through circumstances, sometimes we don't leave God any other choice and he allows stuff to happen to bring us to our knees, to bring us to the end so that he can get our attention. So sometimes our circumstances. So 
Um, are you thankful? Are you thankful when you become aware of your sin? <laughs> are you thankful that now you're aware of it? It's something that is not easy to live out and to learn and to acquire. A thankful heart when you're when you become aware of your sin. So, so in other words, if I say it like this, when someone confronts you, do you say, I'm so thankful that you confronted me. And by the way, would you be faithful to do it again? See, I don't know. We don't really embrace, embrace it that way, do we? That confrontation, that facing sin when someone points it out. In fact, our natural reaction, or mine is anyway, it's like, What? Here's how you can know that I'm like guilty. I go, what? I have a tell. Me? Right? Most of you do, actually. Most of us resist. We find confession burdensome and we find it shameful. And uh, man, we don't want to talk about it. So I want you to try to look through that lens as we work through this psalm. And uh, am I really a person who's committed to change? Because we need to be people that change all the time. Turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is, it it exegetes, it explains, it, it expounds the fact that confession is a grace, okay? Confession is a gift. Confession is something we should celebrate We know that these, the words of this prayer of confession, it's a song, it's a prayer of David's. They're written by a king, by the way, after he's been confronted, like I said, by the prophet Nathan, after committing the sins of adultery, murder, and and, wow, he manipulated, I think, his way into things, he, he, he abused his power and his position as king, as a man. He, he, he abused his relationship with a very loyal man, the husband of Bathsheba, Uriah. He had him murdered, and it, it's like he just pretended and tried to cover it up. It, 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 it's crazy, the egregious heinous sin that he committed, all right? Psalm 51, though, now, just try to capture David's heart here now as we read this. Listen to what he says. He says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your loyal love, because of your great compassion, wipe away my rebellious acts, wash away my wrongdoing, cleanse me of my sin, for I'm aware of my rebellious acts. I'm forever conscious of my sin against you. You above all I have sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. So you are just when you confront me. You are right when you condemn me. Look, I was guilty of sin from birth. A sinner the moment my mother conceived me. Look, you you desire integrity in the inner man. You want me to possess wisdom. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be pure. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Grant me the ultimate joy of being forgiven. May the bones you crushed rejoice. Wow. 
There's more. I just want to get through the first 10 verses, if we can do that. Confession is a grace. So how is that confession a grace? I said that, right? Verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your loyal love, because of your great compassion. Wipe away my rebellious acts. See, here's my first point right here. It's a grace to run to the mercy of the Lord. It's a grace to run to the mercy of the Lord. So this is why we have to define the differences between mercy and grace. Think about this. The average person that you and I interact with, I mean, outside of church, right? Outside of church, doesn't even recognize God's existence, doesn't even care about what God thinks, doesn't even think about, uh, think in spiritual terms, let alone crave or cry out for the mercy of God. If there's any moment where you cry out for God's mercy, that something's going on in your, in your heart, right? You know that grace has visited you, has visited your heart because uh, we can be so incredibly self-righteous. We are unbelievably, ridiculously self-reliant people. We can be so easily self-satisfied, right? And when you can't, think that there's any hope. When you get to this point where it's like, oh, I'm at the bottom and there's no hope, all right? There's no hope for me except for the Lord, except for the Lord. You know that grace is operating inside of you because it takes grace to get to that point. This gift that God gives us, something we don't deserve, his love and his compassion. He brings us to this point sometimes. He has brought David to this point because, because he's God's man. His heart is for God. David has this intimate relationship with God. There is a deep connection, connection right? See, here's how it works. You cannot grieve what your heart hasn't seen, right? Your heart has eyes. You cannot confess what you haven't grieved and you cannot repent of what you haven't confessed. It's only when your eyes become open to your need by an act of grace, the grace of God, that you begin to confess and seek the help of your Savior. And at that moment when God opens up your eyes and you see the depth of your need, it's not a moment of tragedy, it's a moment of rescue. It's a moment of rescue, right? And that is salvation. Oh God, I am sinful and I need a savior. I need a savior. You know, it's been said that in order for a person to get saved, you have to get them lost. (laughs) Most of the time, we don't think we're lost. Wow, you have to get people lost. So and that is so true of our, our heart, our nature, right? God wants to wrap his loving arms around us. He, 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 he's, he's saying in this loving moment, in particular for the Christ follower, the person where this is where Jesus lives, he resides, the Holy Spirit of God. He, he lives here, he dwells here. God is saying, I see all your dirtiness, but come to me anyway. I love you. I paid the price for you. 
So David gets this, actually. He gets this, and that, that's my aim today, is that we would get this. If you see the egregious and horrific nature of what David has done, you know that there's no help for him but in the Lord. Goodness. This is crazy, right? Riches aren't going to help him. He's, he's figured that out. Kingly power doesn't help him. Politics isn't going to help him. Family loyalties aren't going to help him. There's only one place of help. It's the Lord. And when you're confessing that, you're confessing that because, of, because grace has found you. And it's a gift. Look at verse 2 and 3. Wash away my wrongdoings. Cleanse me of my sin, for I'm aware of my rebellious acts. I am forever conscious of my sin. Wow. Right? It's a grace to understand the true nature of sin. Here we go. The, the, the scary thing for all of us, and I think that all of us can admit this, is that sin doesn't always look sinful. Sometimes it looks really beautiful. There's no way in this moment, right, where David's looking down at Bathsheba, taking a bath, and, you know, you can read the story. And he's beginning to give himself over to lust. That moment does not seem dangerous to him. There's no way. He's not feeling tragedy about what he's about to do. What he sees is compelling beauty. Sin at that moment actually looks pretty. It looks beautiful. It looks attractive. Right? If your child's about to disobey uh, their parents or you, right? Or let's just say if a child. Let's just make it anybody's kid, right? They don't see the danger of telling themselves that they are, they are um, that that they're a self-ruling human being at that moment, right? And they have the right to do what they want to do. In that moment, they're feeling the buzz and the power power of temporary freedom, and and independence. Sin looks beautiful to them. That's why they say, you know, no, I'm. Or they just do what they want to do. Sometimes you say, don't do that. <laughs> so when God opens our eyes to the sinfulness of sin, when, when it looks as ugly as it, is, as it really is to us, when it, is, is, when it becomes the disaster that it, it should be, and, and, and we understand this, we know that grace has come to our hearts. So David uses three really powerful words that capture the sinfulness of sin. The first word is Rebellion. Sometimes uh, your, maybe some of your translations use the word transgression. I like the word rebellion. This is high-handed rebellion, actually. It's trespassing. It's a, willingly, a, a willing, knowledgeable stepping over God's boundaries, right? In case you don't understand what rebellion is, let me explain it. It's you and me willingly parking in the no parking zone, Right? Even though we see the sign and we tell ourselves, I'm just going to be a minute, right? What you're saying is, I, I know the law. I understand the law, but I don't give a rip about the law because I need, uh, my needs are more important right now to me and anything else in my existence, I'm important. I'm going to park here, thank you. I'm the Lord in this moment. Seriously, that's rebellion, right? It's, it is laying claim to rulership over your life. And and I think it's dangerous as believers to think that our rebel days are over. 
No way. Our rebel days are not over. We are still being redeemed from our rebellion. It's a process, this sanctifying process is changing us, right? Another word he uses here is wrongdoing or iniquity. So I still like wrongdoing, right? What's wrongdoing? Wrongdoing is the most um, foundational word for sin. It, it, it's moral impurity or uncleanness. That's wrongdoing. It captures nature. It's not that I do wrong things. It's not just that I say wrong things. It's not to decide I have wrong actions to different circumstances. That's not it. I am wrong, right? There's something wrong inside of me. And it's moral impurity and uncleanness that allows me to be a rebel. And so change has to happen inside of me. It has to happen. It has to happen consistently. That's why I need a redeemer. And that's what the redeemer does. So, so, so when you begin to embrace moral uncleanness, it starts sticking to you. You can't get it off. You can't escape it. And yes, although the power of sin has been broken by Jesus, that moral uncleanness is still inside of us and in some way is being progressively eradicated by the relentless grace of Jesus. So the last word for sin, I'm just going to say it's the word sin, (laughs) okay? It means missing the mark. That's sin, missing the mark. And, but, but, but that's mostly true because if you're, it, let's just call it archery. If you're an archer and you pull back the bow, all right, and you let it go and you're shooting at the target in the bullseye and you miss it, that's missing the mark. But sin's greater than that. It'd be like in my best effort as an archer, my best eyesight, my best focus and everything, and I pull it back and I let the arrow go and it falls short of the target. All the time, every time. See, that is sin. That's what sin is. Sin is inability. Sin leaves me broken. It leaves me crippled. It leaves me now unable to live up to God's standard apart from the gift of God's power, actually. There's no way I can't be sinful. And so you, you, you put these words together. Not only do, you, do, do I want to do God's God's will often, I, I can't apart from his rescue. That's the theology, and that's why there's nothing beautiful about sin at all. And sin is the ultimate human disaster. It destroys relationships. It, it des- destroys any kind of or form of government. It destroys communities. It, it, its destruction is everywhere and at every point. And if you would pray for anything today, I think... Even during this sermon, pray, God, open my eyes to the sinfulness of sin. I don't want to see sin as a beautiful thing. Change me. Change me. That's where David was. Look at verse 3. For I'm aware of my rebellious acts. I am forever conscious of my sin. Wow. Let's move on to the third point. It's a grace to know, feel, and experience the pain of conviction. So I love David's words here. It's, it's, it's an awesome thing to be haunted by the convicting mercies of the Holy Spirit, a spirit who will not let us go. So when, uh, if, if this is where God resides, he knocks on your heart sometimes. He 
you just know something's not right. He makes, he gets you that sick feeling sometimes, right? When he's like, hey, what's going on here? This is sin. And is that pain, is that struggle, and isn't that change and awareness and all those things, that confrontation, is that enjoyable? No. It's never enjoyable, I don't think. But here's the theology again in it. The Bible tells us that as an act of mercy, God has taken the heart that is stone, right? Or the stone in our heart and taken it out of us. And I want you to notice kind of, or just listen to the metaphor. If, if I have a stone in my heart and, 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 and I want to press on it, I want to move it, I want to soften it up, I, I, you know, I want to make it sensitive, I, there's nothing I can do about that. I can't change that myself, right? Nothing, because that stone is impenetrable. It's resistant to change. That's the way we are. That's the way we're designed The Bible says that God will give you a new heart, though. He will put a new spirit within you. God says, I'll remove the heart of stone from your body and give you a heart of flesh. He says that in the Old Testament and New Testament. He says that in Ezekiel and all throughout um, the Gospels. One, he he says, I'm going to give you a heart that is sensitive to the spirit. It's malleable, moldable. That's beautiful because if you're God's child, you now have a fleshy heart. That stone's been taken out. That stone's been replaced. And and now you have a sensitive heart. Now you feel the pain of conviction because this is where Jesus, this is where the Holy Spirit resides and he is transforming you. Now stay with me because this is important. When you feel that pain of conviction, you only have one of two choices. When God begins to knock on that fleshy heart and you're like, oh, right? You'll be, you will gladly receive that as a good thing, that, that pain is actually a warning system. It's like a pain in your body. When you feel pain, right, you're like, hey, something's wrong, and that's what sends us to the doctor. For men, it takes more because we don't want to go. And after a while, your wife is like, hey, I am sick and tired of you and your pain because you're becoming a pain to me. You need to go to the doctor, and then you go. So it becomes this warning system, right? Because you realize something's wrong. So when I feel that pain, when I experience that pain in my heart as a result of conviction, I only have one or two choices. Number one, I immediately, willingly confess the thing that is wrong. And I place myself once again under the justifying mercies of Christ. And I experience his forgiveness. I do that or I begin to erect some system of self-justification that makes that wrong that sin acceptable to my conscience. No, I don't think it was actually him. That was, I think it was heartburn. I'm just feeling, uh, I don't know. I'm different than other folks. I don't know, right? We're very good at kind of lying to ourselves, aren't we? And justifying things, man, we can, oh yeah. I argue for my righteousness. I defend myself. I recast my history. I try to convince myself that that what God says is, I don't know, I, that's not accurate. I don't know. You're interpreting that wrong. I think it's like this, right? I'd ask you this morning, are you thankful for the pain of conviction? Are you thankful that there's a relenting Savior who's invaded your life that will, that will not relent until his work is done? He chases after us. 
The Holy Spirit of God is convicting us. I think you need to sit up and pay attention and let's not stiff arm God and, and erect all this justification, right? Look at what it says in verse eight. Look at verse eight. Grant me the ultimate joy of being forgiven. Who sings that, right? May the bones you crushed rejoiced because that's what it feels like. Your bones being crushed by God. Who crushed the bones? Obviously God. God loves you so much that in order to reclaim your heart, he's gonna crush your bones. That's not judgment, that's grace. It's painful, it's purposeful, and it is love. See, here's number four. It is a grace to know that all sin is vertical. Two, this is, we gotta move here. What, what does David say? Verse four, look at verse four. Against you, you above all, I've sinned, I've done what is evil in your sight. So you are just when you confront me. You are right when you condemn me. One of the, day, the ways we minimize sin is we tend to view it as only being horizontal, right? And maybe you're confused by the words here of David, but they shouldn't be. It's against you. You, above all, I have sinned. He says it straight up. He's not minimizing the sin that he's committed against Bathsheba and the sin against Uriah and the sin against his own family, and the sin against evil, or Israel. His, this kingdom and, and the abuse that he's engaged in, but he is saying this, it's impossible for sin to ever only be horizontal. Every sin is an act uh, uh, against the glory of God. That's the way it is. Every sin forgets God's existence or denies it. Every sin is on a quest for God's throne. Every sin replaces God with some kind of idol, an idol that we want more than we want him. Every sin is an affront to the relationship with God for which we were created, and we were created by God to be in relationship with him, for him, actually. Now, understand what's going on here. You and I are not created for our own glory. We were created to write our own narrative. It's about him. It's not about us and our own pleasure, we weren't created for the success of our own purposes. We're created for his purposes. Uniquely, we were created and given the capacity to live for the glory of God. Sin has broken that desire and broken that capacity. So try to think of the Godward nature of our entire lives and how broken that is. That nothing belongs to us. Everything uh, we do is meant to be done with a self-conscious and Godwardness. Godwardness. But we think all our stuff is ours, right? Verse five. Look, I was guilty of sin from birth, a sinner, the moment my mother conceived me. What a humbling confession. You know, right? We're so tempted to look outside of ourselves for the logic of our sin. Well, you don't, under, you don't know my husband. You don't know my kids. You don't know my circumstances. You don't know my boss. You don't know my family and my origin and all. Oh, come on. My circumstances, right? No, no, no. Self-externalism is what it is. David says something that I pray all of us would embrace. He says, long before the first experience, long before my circumstances, my situation, and all, all this kind of stuff, I was a sinner. I was born sinful. I was shaped in it. This problem came into the world with me. That means this, 
I have no capacity whatsoever in myself to escape it. My only hope is the mercy and loving kindness of the Lord. I have no hope. I have no other hope. There's no hope any other way. That's why we sing all kinds of song about, songs about this hope. There's no Savior but Jesus. Number five, it's a grace to cry out for a new heart. So you know this is really the summary of all that we've said, right? When you read the word heart in the scripture, you should fill in these words, the core of your personhood. So David is saying, my, my problem exists at the very core of what makes me tick, at the very core of my emotions, the very core of my desires, the very core of my thoughts, the very core of my motivation. And so God, there's nothing, there's nothing else that would help me except for you give me a new heart. I need a new heart. And it's awesome that the promise of the new covenant is, I will give them a new heart. Psalm 51 is, and, and all of its confession is really prophetic because as King David prays these unbelievable words of confession, that, that picture of grace of confession, his words cry out for another king, actually. The king, uh, or the son of David who would, who would come, the son of David, the Lord Jesus who would face all the temptations David faced, but without sin. So he would be the perfectly acceptable sacrifice. So he would satisfy the father's anger so that his righteousness would be given over to our account. So we could stand before God as righteous, though we are not. So that we would receive forgiveness, so that we would receive his adoption, acceptance, and receive eternal life. Now, this is what this means. It means when I feel the pain of conviction, it means that when God uses a situation or uses another person, an individual, to point out my sin, I no longer need to wallow in guilt and shame. I don't need to hide in shame. I don't need to fear my sin being found out because the blood of Jesus has covered it all, all of it, past, present, and future, When you swear allegiance to the king, the king Jesus, he forgives. He mercifully does not send us to hell. He gives us graciously a gift that we do not deserve. And I can run to the presence of the holy God and I can once again experience then forgiveness by confessing and agreeing with God about this sin that wrecks us all, right? Every time when the Spirit of God convicts my heart, I rise to defend myself almost every time first. I'm committing, actually, when I do that, an an act of gospel irrationality because it's impossible for anything to ever be exposed that that hasn't already been covered by the son of David, the Savior and King Jesus, you see? So the most important thing about the Lord's Supper and these tables is not actually so much the confession. It is an important part. It is a big deal so that you can experience the forgiveness that God has purchase for you, but is the act of remembering so that that's not the only place. In other words, my point is that you confess. 
I think we should do it often, but we sort of relegate it to this time before the Lord's Supper. Oh man, it's, we got to get to more of this celebrating and embracing before that. So what does this have to do with me? Are you committed to change? Are you? Change is hard. If you're committed to change, then you're going to see confession as a grace. Agreeing with God about our sin. And number three, God opens our eyes. That's what he wants to do. God brings the pain of conviction. He wants to help us see the sinfulness of sin, not because he's going to turn his back on us, because he's, he, he's pulling us close and saying, I, I want you to continue to, and experience only what I alone can give you. That's what I want. Forgiveness, grace. So, so, so when he knocks on your heart, you feel that pain. Don't resist it. Don't stiff arm God. Oh my goodness. God is after you because he loves and cares about you. He wants relationship with you. Isn't that amazing how David in this humiliating, awful, egregious sin can write this song and agree with God about all these deep things that God is and wants to be in your and my life. Would you pray with me? Lord, there are so many times when rather than running to you, I run to my own defense. Lord, help us to embrace this magnificent story of redemption and forgiveness and unrelenting grace. Because you love us. Lord, I know you want to open up our eyes and our hearts so that we receive more of this saving salvation. Thank you that you don't give up, that you won't quit, that you, you, don't, want to, you, you don't walk away. You stay on task until we've been completely delivered from sin. Lord God, we praise you and thank you for the grace of confession. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. If you have any questions, would like more information about our church, or would like to see the video cast of this message, please visit our website at www.vailchristian.com.